Hello, and welcome to the Blue Jay, the Blue and White's podcast on what's up, down, left, and right on Columbia University's campus. I'm Kate Steiner, your host of our first episode. We're so excited to start bringing you monthly recordings of news, interviews, musings, and creativity. Let's get right into it with Blue Jay's Raquel Turner and her very on-theme piece discussing oral history with an interview from the Columbia Center for Oral History and Research. Oral history is an important tool for objectively recording a diverse world. It is defined by its focus on the collection of personal narratives of some historical significance using audio or video. Oral history at its core is meant to be a conversation between an interviewer and an interviewee. The modern history of this method of research began in the 30s and 40s with the assigning of the New Deal's Federal Writers Project, or FWP. The FWP was concerned with the recording of the American experience, from the lives of families struggling through the Great Depression to the lives of former enslaved people, most of whom were in their old age. In the late 1940s, Alan Nevins of Columbia University saw the potential in the expansion of oral history research. He began to approach it systematically, streamlining the methods through which oral history was recorded and preserved. He established the Columbia Oral Research Office, and thus, the contemporary oral history research movement began. Today, the same office is known as the Columbia Center for Oral History Research. It is still devoted to the collection of the human experience. The Blue Jays set out to their office on Broadway and 122nd Street to talk about the importance of their work and see what they're up to now. Today, I'm talking to uh, Michael Falco. He is the Associate Director of the Interdisciplinary Center for Innovative Theory and Empirics, which is Insight, and then also the Columbia Center for Oral History Research. Is that right? That's right. From what I've heard, Insight itself is pretty new? Yeah, Insight itself actually started in uh, 2012. We were part of something called the uh, ISERP, which is still around, uh, and we split off a number of initiatives that uh, where humanities and social sciences intersected into its own center called uh, Insight. And yeah, we've been around since 2012, and then the Columbia Center for Oral History Research actually joined us in 2013. And what was the reason for joining together? Uh, between It actually goes back to 2001. Uh, Mary Marshall Clark, who at the time was the director of what was called the Columbia Center for Oral History, had worked with Peter Behrman, who's the director of Insight, on a project on 9-11. They had, in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, they had dispatched interviewers within, within weeks of the events. Uh, to talk to all New Yorkers about their experiences with 9-11. That grew into, I think, 700 or so interviews with, with New Yorkers, and the collection took place, place over five years. So they interviewed people and then returned to them several years later to have an understanding of how those events impacted their lives. So they had a long working relationship. In 2008, they started the Oral History Master of Arts program together. And the Oral History Master of Arts, when we split from ISERP, also came to Insight. And so we were already sharing the Oral History Master's program with the Oral History Office. And it was around that time where it just made sense to splinter off research, the research aims of the Oral History Office from the archival aims of the Oral History Office. So the Oral History Archives live on at the libraries, and their job is to to handle and manage the collection and manage access to the collection, which is the, is one of the largest oral history collections in the world. It has uh, 15,000 interviews I know, now and 20 some odd thousand hours of audio in the collection. Wow. Uh, and we contribute up to 500 hours of new audio each year from the research office, from the research side. What kind of people are using this research? It's a lot of academics historians, those who are interested in, in any number of topics. The collection spans everything from 
the 1930s and the New Deal all the way through the Great Society into uh, recent issues that we've dealt into, which include the 9-11 collection. It includes a, a large collection that Mary Marshall oversaw dealing with the um, rule of law in Guantanamo Bay specifically. And so it's, it's historians who are interested in any number of topics, whether it's HIV AIDS or um, civil rights or arts and entertainment. We have a collection that we partnered with the Apollo um, Theater, and it speaks to a lot of classic artists like Smokey Robinson and things like that. And so it's, it's a wide array of, of academics, journalists, people who are working on books who are interested in understanding something that they, they couldn't get otherwise, either because the person, the source of that material has since passed or because it, has a kind of, it allows a richer understanding and access to someone they might not otherwise be able to interview. So what's the advantage of recording this as oral research as opposed to writing it down? Or I mean, I think our process is, ultimately, there, there are audio transcripts. There is the audio, but we do create transcripts of the interview themselves. And our approach is, many of our interviews adhere to what we call the life history approach. So it really starts way back at the beginning. If, for instance, when we do an oral history on the Apollo Theater, we're interested in how that individual interacted with the Apollo Theater and those experiences, but we're also interested in their lives before that. And, and often these interviews start with questions about, tell us your earliest memory or tell us um, tell us where you were born or some other detail. And so it's really linking their, their own history to the history of the institution or organization that we're examining. Ultimately, we'll produce a full transcript of that that's very carefully edited and is ready to be cited and the advantage really is in the process, the, the allowing the narrator to tell their story, to understand, to have a perspective of, of both their past and the institutions and, and work that they've done. Right. So I've, I've heard that the defining feature of oral history is that it has to be a dialogue between the interviewer and the interviewee. <laughs> so do you think that kind of changes... The nature of the information that you're getting? I mean, the, the the transcript itself is as much an encounter between two people who are having a conversation. And in the end, it's the narrator who's telling us their story. We're not journalists. We're not going in with a list of 40 or 50 questions, and we're going to ask those questions one at a time, and we're trying to dig for like a very specific fact. We're allowing the narrator to tell their story. And so the questions are often open-ended. They allow the conversation will go in the direction that the narrator wants. And, and what further distinguishes it, and it's part of our ethical practice, is that the transcript is ultimately sent to the person who is being interviewed. And they get to review that transcript and, and make edits or clarifications as they see fit in the transcript so that they really do control what it is they're sharing and what's going into the archive. Right. I know that oral history is not new, but you've said that the method through which you guys are collecting this and recording it is a new process that Columbia has. Yeah, I mean, oral history predates Columbia University by you know thousands of years. Right. Uh, oral traditions have been passed down for a long time. Uh, in 1948, when Ellen Evans started the uh, oral history center at Columbia University, it was the first institutional oral history we could within an academic setting. And so the objective really was to have a more systematic approach for collecting and thinking about oral history. And so that's that's where the, the life history approach began to be pioneered. That's where we began to think about how do you tell 
retail something like the New Deal or something you know like the Vietnam War, and how do you collect enough perspectives of of individuals to actually create a collection that's useful to historians and and not just useful to historians today to answer questions about today, but useful to historians fifty years from now who can engage with the transcript and actually and actually ask questions that we can't begin to imagine because we don't know what life is going to be like 50 years from now. We don't know how important um, the response to the HIV AIDS crisis was for some future crisis that, that we can't yet imagine. And so it, it memorialized a more systematic approach to oral history and, and began the process of doing institutional oral histories, oral histories of foundations, oral histories of organizations. And from that also eventually sprung our oral history master's program, which again is dedicated to training the future generation of oral historians who are grounded in the theory of oral history, the theory and the practice of oral history, and, and the nature of memory and, and the objective of, of what you can and can't capture through oral history. Yeah. Do you think your methods have changed in any large way since you started? Since I've been around, I mean, my, my involvement with oral history really goes back to 2012 when you know, I started this work with Insight and began to work with the Oral History Master's program. On our projects, we're often in innovating or tinkering a little bit and thinking about the process that we're, we're um, the way that we're capturing oral history. For example, uh, we did an oral history of the artist Robert Rauschenberg, and though he had passed when we started this oral history, we talked to his contemporaries, we talked to his assistants, we talked to people who purchased and sold his art. And throughout that process, we discovered that something that was really difficult was we wanted to be able to understand Robert Rauschenberg's creative process. And so we came up, I should say, I, I had no involvement in coming up with this idea. Sarah Sinclair, who was the manager on the project and, and the individuals that we were working with at the Robert Rauschenberg Foundation, determined that a really great way to understand the actual practice and how Robert Rauschenberg created his art was to create art installations in a warehouse that they had upstate. And so they would put the art on display and then the assistants who helped them with the art would go and look at the artwork and they would detail it, you know, very technically about the, the technical approach that he took, which both had value in understanding someone's creative process that hasn't really fully been understood, but it's also just fundamentally useful to those who are trying to preserve that art, who understand what the material is in them, how it was created, how to preserve it. That was something we came up with on the fly that we discovered as we were in the process of, of doing these stories that we weren't still fully capturing some element of uh, Robert Rauschenberg's life and work. And so so that's usually where like these innovations come from, is, is we're presented with an issue or challenge of memory and we find some way to, to capture it. What other projects have you worked on since you've been here? Yeah, we've, we've done, we've completed, uh, since I've started here, a project on the Atlantic Philanthropies. It's not a, not maybe as well known of a foundation, but it was started with the, as a limited life foundation. So they, they had money, they were going to invest it, and they, were know that they knew they were going to close up shop by 2020 or, or some year in the future. And so we did a, a large-scale oral history of, of the, the foundation itself, but also the organizations and institutions that they funded to understand the impact that their support had. For instance, there was an organization they funded in Ireland that was instrumental to uh, winning freedom to marriage there. That was seed support that they provided to, to an organization. And so that sent us all over the world. I mean, we were, we were in Vietnam and Australia and Ireland and South Africa and these different countries where they had worked. And we completed that about two years ago. We did the oral history of Robert Rauschenberg. 
Uh, we did an oral history of Phoenix House, which is one of the earliest uh, recovery clinics in New York and, and in the world. And that was, that was one that we wrapped up in 2016, 2017. And then recently we started a pair of oral histories, uh, one on the human rights campaign, uh, which will be over the next two years, and we'll talk to 40 or 50 individuals from that organization about the formation of the human rights campaign in the 1980s, the effect of the AIDS crisis on that organization, and look at its entire institutional history. And then the other is the Obama Presidency Oral History Project, which we're um, just getting underway and, and is a five-year project in which our goal is to talk to 400 individuals about the Obama administration and to ordinary peoples and their interaction with the administration. And how long do you, these projects tend to take? They, they tend to take two to five years. It really depends on the scale of the project. Trying to pin down even 40 people is, is a real challenge. And, and it's not that we just do one oral history session. I mean, our process is we identify individuals to talk to, and then we, we hope that we can do multiple sessions, ideally three or four with an individual. And you, know, you do a session, you take some time, and then you come back and you explore areas that you might have missed. And then you come back and you explore further areas that you might have missed. And, and so it's, it's an iterative process. And a project like that does take about two years. And, and the Obama project, because of its, um, its significant scale and the number of people involved in the project, is we, we anticipate that we'll wrap it up in five years, which is also a, an ambitious timeline. So who is it that asks for the project to be done, or is this something that's within the department? It, it, it always unfolds, I mean, it unfolds in different ways. Organizations are often, have identified, rightly so, oral history is a wonderful way to understand their institution and to preserve their history. Um, and so sometimes we'll be approached by an organization who's thinking about it, but they, they have an idea of what oral history is in their mind, but they don't have a specific vision for it. They just know that oral history is one instrument to understand their organization and preserve history. And so these are often conversations where someone has an idea and then we begin to help them understand what a project would look like, what a scale would allow you to, you know, what scale would allow you to capture what in that project. Um, and it varies from organization to organization. It varies how old the organization is. It varies how many people you really want to be able to include in that project. Um, and so, so yeah, so it really, I mean, we often have ideas. The, the, the rule of law project I mentioned on Guantanamo Bay was conceived by Mary Marshall Clark. She, she knew that this was an important salient issue at the time, and it felt like a natural extension from our 9-11 project, since much of, much of what happened is happening at Guantanamo Bay is a result of, of 9-11. Um, and therefore, she had an idea and a vision and, and knew how important it was to understand the rule of law, to understand what was happening to de detainees in Guantanamo Bay. And, and that was, yeah. And so from, from the start to the finish, that was her vision for a project. So on a more personal note, what got you into oral history? <laughs> Circumstance a little bit. I mean, um, Peter Behrman, who started Insight, and I, I was the first employee of Insight. Um, and when we started, we didn't really have a sense for how long we intended this organization to run. You know, we just hoped to build something interesting that would last. And, and we knew that the Oral History Master's program was coming with us. And so we knew oral history was always going to be an important part of the organization. Mm -hmm. But my interest really came from and was sparked by our relationship through the Oral History Master's program. And then by the time that we, 
agreed with the libraries to divide the oral history center into two distinct divisions, one dedicated to archiving and one dedicated to research. I was all on board for, for bringing, bringing oral history to a center like ours and to de design and deploy research projects that would create really interesting collections that could be used by academics 10, 15, 20, 50 years from now. Nice. Yeah. Thanks again to Mr. Falco and the Columbia Center for Oral History Research for sitting down with the Blue Jay. Hi, my name is Chase Cutterelli, and although I don't view myself as a very superstitious person, there's one thing that I choose to believe in, and that is ghosts. Hey, this is Sadia Hawk, and I don't believe in ghosts at all, but I'm willing to hear a new perspective. So, Sadia, did you know that there is a 100% chance you are a ghost? Did you know that is 100% doubtful? But how could you say such a thing when there's so much evidence that ghosts exist? Right here, on Columbia's campus. What do you mean by so much evidence? I'm so glad you asked. Let's dive right in. When I'm in my dorm at night, sometimes I feel this chill go up my spine, as if some phantom is passing through the land of the living. I don't know, Chase. Maybe there's a window open somewhere, a door. There are so many other realistic explanations to why there is a chill in the air other than ghosts. Like, so many. I guess that's a fair point. Sometimes I leave my window open during the day and I forget to close it at night, so it's probably just the wind. But when I turn on the lights in my dorm, they start to flicker. What other explanation could there be other than some apparition? I acknowledge that the flickering lights are a problem, but Hartley's an old building. There are bound to be loose wires everywhere. You're making a lot of sense, Sadia. But I know this next bit is really going to convince you. Don't you feel when you're walking around on campus that you're being watched? by some omnipresent specter. Of course you're being watched. You're on a college campus. They have cameras literally everywhere. Okay, Saudi, fine. There might not be any ghosts on campus, but personally, I feel like a ghost of my former self going to this school. As a first year student, I'm so overwhelmed by the competition, by the need to fit in, by the workload, and I just want to find some solidarity in my spooky friends. So can't you respect that at least? I get it. College life is hard, and everyone needs their coping mechanism. And if yours is ghost, I respect that. Thank you, Sadia. Although you have not made me a believer. I still don't believe in ghosts. At all. Well, maybe next time. Maybe. Next, we have Alan Lee reading from his short fiction, The Bus. You can find the whole story and other digital publications from The Blue and White at our website, theblueandwhite.org. At Hessel, because of the large number of commuters joining there, Route 53 always cut its engine. The sudden release of the shuddering tension of the droning rumble injected an aural freshness into the bus, followed by the rush of the world as the doors hissed open and then abrupt silence. Some heads stirred from sleep, waked by quiet, whilst others looked drowsily around. Mrs. Brummage was motionless, unflinching despite the traffic rushing past, hands on lap, still humming. Under the heavy footsteps of people entering and climbing stairs, Mrs. Brummage's eerie melody wafted throughout the bottom deck of the bus. It was no folk song anyone had heard, for her long and slow notes were a constant stream of improvisation, 
meandering and slurring between a few semitones, and jumping high or low at the rare whim. Her placid expression revealed nothing of her self-awareness, and indeed there was something almost deliberate in her muffled articulation. And now for your favorite anonymous segment, Shouting into the Void, a place where you, the students of Columbia, can project your deepest recurring thoughts and feelings you've experienced or seen on campus. To the dog walker that I met on Claremont and 116th with the 12 big dogs, please come here more often so I can pet them all. To whoever stole the black folding umbrella that was near the door in Millbank 323, you know who you are, and I will find you. I can't tell if my TA hates me or is just English. The Blue Jay is brought to you by The Blue and White Magazine, a monthly undergraduate publication from Columbia University. Go to theblueandwhite.org to read current and archive student work stretching back to our founding in 1890. Like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Blue and White Mag to stay updated with the magazine. Audio Director, Kate Steiner. Staff Members, Raquel Turner, Chase Cutterelli, and Sadia Hawk. Editor-in-Chief, Ufan Umana. Managing Editor, Esme Ablaza. Publisher, Mary Elizabeth Dawson. Investigations Editor, Grace Aidy. Literary Editor, Jacob Snyder. Online Editor, Zoe Metcalf. Senior Illustrator, Sada Denner. Layout Editor, Gigi Lee. Senior Editors, Nicole Kohut, Sam Needleman, and Malia Simon. With music from Stephanie Chow and contributions from Alan Lee. Thank you so much for listening.